Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is not one of the most well-known psalms. Uh, If you ask people what psalms they know best, it's probably Psalm 1 and Psalm 100 and Psalm 23. But Psalm 2 is pretty far up there, just because it comes right after 1, I think, is the the main reason. Um, And it's still... Short enough, it's pretty easy to, to read and, and remember. But the problem is that I don't think that it's easy for a lot of us to make sense of it or to really apply it to our lives. Why do the nations rage? Um, sometimes that seems very applicable to us, and other times we think, what? I, don't, I don't even know what that Means. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this psalm and we're going to try to answer a few questions. The first that we really need to get answered before we can make sense of it is how do the nations rage? Not just why do they, but what exactly does it look like for the nations to rage? Is that still happening today? And the answer, of course, is yes, it is still happening. We'll look and see at how the nations rage against God. And then we'll see what the temptations are for us as God's people when we see the nations raging against him. And then we will see the promise of God concerning the outcome of all of this rage and conflict and struggles that we face And that is a joyful, joyful promise, as we will see. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, this psalm it's about David, but it's not about David, but it is about David. <clears throat> and this is the way that the psalms often are when you when you read the Old Testament, you read prophecies, they have their immediate meaning in the in the time frame that is being addressed, which is way back at the time of David, uh, in this case. And then you have the 
long-term meaning of the prophecy, uh, which for the most part refers to Jesus Christ. Sometimes there's uh, prophecies about other kings and, and so forth, but most of the Old Testament, the prophecies that we see, they look forward to the coming of Christ, either his first coming or his second coming, or both intermingled together. And so, if you think about reading this psalm way back in the B.C. era, so prehistoric to you kids, right? Um, You've got a different you've got a different political situation. It's more like going over into uh, the, the Mideast still today, where there's, there's actual kingdoms, but it's, there's really only one kingdom left in, over there today. That's Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There's a king. There's North Korea, you could call a, a kingdom, except that they refuse to call themselves a kingdom. They call themselves the Democratic Republic of North Korea, so... I don't know what you can make of that. Uh, but we don't, have, we don't have kings so much anymore, right? But we do still have nations. So even if you can't quite wrap your mind around the idea of a king over a nation, you can still think of the fact that there are nations. And we still understand that there are various nations all over the earth, And the first verse speaks of the nations being in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. Well, what is a vain thing? What does the word vain mean? I'm not talking about in your arms. A vain thing is something that is pointless, right? A vain thing is something that will not accomplish your intention. So you can uh, try to light the fire in the rain when you're out camping, and it can be in vain because you can't get the fire going, right? When something is entirely in vain, it means that you're not going to get it done. You're not going to accomplish your goal. And so the nations are in an uproar and the peoples are devising, planning something that's, that we already know is in vain. It's all, we already know it's not going to accomplish their goal. And then it goes not just from the nations and the people, but to the leaders, the kings. And again, we can have a hard time kind of understanding that, but if you just think of the president, that's probably good enough to, uh, to make the connection for you. And the kings are taking their stand, and the rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, all of this is building up to that last phrase, against the Lord and against his anointed. What are the nations in an uproar trying to do? What is the vain thing that they are devising? What Who are the kings of the earth taking their stand against? What is all of this plotting and planning, the council that the rulers are taking together? It's against the Lord and against his anointed. And their goal in in fighting against him is to tear the fetters apart and cast away their cords. What are fetters? Fetters are handcuffs, right? So the, so the world is tied up and handcuffed by God and by his anointed, is what this says, and they hate it. Now, that's not exactly the good news, is it? That you're tied up and handcuffed is not what we normally think of as the Proclaiming the gospel, something that you want to tell people. Hey, good news. 
you're tied up and handcuffed by God, and any planning and fighting and arguing that you do against it, it's entirely in vain. But this is the start of the good news. How exactly is it that people are tied up? How is it that they are handcuffed, that they're, that they're unable to move? Well, it's through God's law. What, they're, what they are attempting to overthrow, what they're attempting to get rid of is God's law that is binding them, that is binding on them. God's law tells us what we may do, what we must do, what we may not do, right? So when you read the Ten Commandments, you see do this and do this and do this and don't do this and don't do this. And we, we have those memorized, right? The don'ts especially. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. We have all those memorized. And when we see the world, the world knows that these are laws. The, the world knows that these things are binding on them. And yet they do everything they can to throw off those cords to get rid of anything that requires them to actually listen to God's law, anything that actually forces them to do what God has said we must do. They're taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. Their goal is to get rid of the fetters, get rid of the cords, get rid of his laws so they can do What? What can you not do when you're tied up? What you want, right? So so the nations want to do what they want to do. Just like us, we want to do what we want to do. And, and, you know, I love love using kids as the analogy because when you see little kids, they just come out with, in words or in their behavior, exactly what we as adults still think but that we've sort of tried to paper mache over with nicer and then paint, right? But I want to. That's, that's basically the response of a two-year-old and of a 75-year-old, right? When, when we're told we cannot do what we want to do, one way or another, that's our response. But I want to. The, these are... Cords, fetters being on us. We don't enjoy having cords and fetters on us. And so the world, the nations, the kings, the rulers, the peoples, they're all devising a vain thing. They're all taking counsel together. Their goal is to turn against the Lord and against his anointed so that they can get rid of those rules. So they don't have to listen anymore. Now, if we get rid of the law of God, we are not in a good spot. Okay, you kids, your goal is not to grow up and get out of the house so that you can do whatever you want. Do you understand? That is not your goal. You may not have that as your, as your plan. Well, you know, I have to sit here and listen to whatever mom and dad say for now, but eventually I'll get out of here and I can do whatever I want. That's not appropriate. That is you fighting and, and, and scheming against the cords that God has put on you right now. Remember one of those commands is, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we've been given authorities, we've been given parents for our good. So if the people managed to do this thing that that Psalm 2 says there's no way we can actually do, But if we managed to do it, would we be in a good spot? No, it would be be atrocious. 
a law where, I mean, a land where everybody does whatever they want. We read about that back in Judges, right? Every man did what was right in his own eyes, and how did it go? It was terrible. You read the, you read the stories of what was happening there, and it's, it's heartbreaking. It's awful. And they're all miserable. And so it's a wonderful gift that we have the Lord and his anointed. Now, who is his anointed? In, in this case, in the immediate context, you're talking about the king of Israel, right? You're talking about, that because remember, the kings, they were anointed. They were, they were put into that position as king by God. So David was anointed into his role, his work as king. And so against the Lord and against his anointed means against God and against the king that he has put in place. And it's not talking about, uh, it's not just talking about King Jesus. It is talking about King Jesus, but it's, it's first talking about the king over Israel at that time, who was anointed and put in place, and the nations are attacking God's people. The nations and the, and the, and the peoples and the, all of their planning and devising and scheming, part of what they're trying to do is to attack God's people, to get rid of the Israelites, to get rid of the king of Israel. And that goes right along with hating God and his law. Because the people of Israel, what were they? They were a pattern of the law of Israel. Do you understand? I mean, the law of God. They, they represented to the world the distinction between holy and unholy. Everything that, all of the Old Testament law that you read beyond the Ten Commandments, all of the ceremonial law, all of the sacrificial law, all of the things about what they could and couldn't wear, could and couldn't eat, how they had to prepare their food, so on and so forth, all of these showed themselves and the watching world what? That God has set apart a people for himself, distinct, holy, and so to attack them, to attack that, what God has set up as this unique, beautiful kingdom, this, this holy people, okay, is to attack him and what he has said to do. It's to try to get rid of any memory, get rid of any, uh, any witness in the world that there is a God that he is holy, that he has called us to obedience. Because that's what the Israelites were. They were the witness to the world. And so today, the nations are still devising, still plotting, still raging. And the attacks are still coming, not just against God, big picture, but against God's people against his anointed, against King Jesus, and against those that he leads, us, the church. Just as David had enemies that hate him, hated him, and hated what he had done, <clears throat> just as David was tempted to fear for his life, for his throne, for his whole kingdom, for the work that he had done. Imagine the year in, year out, the work of being king. The work of going off to war each spring, fighting against God's enemies, defending the years that he spent fleeing from Saul, And David is not bothered. 
And why isn't David bothered? Well, because he's confident. He's confident in the fact that he was set apart for the work by God and that God is the one who will complete that work. David's confidence is not that he will never die. Right? David's confidence is not that... uh, that there will never be any more problems in his kingdom, or that every problem that he gets, get, that he gets rid of will, will never come back again. David's confidence is that God will fulfill his promise in his way and in his time. And so what he does is he looks at what God has said. He looks at the promise that God has said. <clears throat> He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, we see verse 4. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is what God has said. His king will accomplish. It's not David's desire for fame or for wealth or power that made him king. It's not his own strength and ability to get people to follow him that made him king. God sent his prophet to anoint David and to speak the words of God, the promises of God. And so this is strengthening to us just as it's strengthening to David. If God has called you to the work you are doing, your confidence is that he will accomplish his goal in that work. Now, what is the work that he's called you to do? Well, for David, it was to be king. So that sounds grand. But nobody in this room is called to be king. Some of us are called to be fathers. Some of us are called to be mothers. Some of us are called to be students. Right now, called to be children that honor your father and your mother. Called to work and provide for your family in various ways. All of us have work that we have been called to do, okay? And so, do you have confidence that as you seek to do God's will, the work that he's placed before you, that it will be good? That it will accomplish his his goals? The world is going to try to convince you that if you do the work God set out for you, that you'll be miserable. The world is going to try to convince you that if you do God's work, it will be terrible. It'll be at the risk of uh, losing all of your relationships. It'll be at the risk of um, having people persecute you. It'll be at the risk of your own family. It'll be at the risk of your own pleasure, your own happiness, your own joy. This is what the world says the the cost of following God is. But what he says when when, when the promise is that he has installed his king upon Zion, his holy mountain, what he's saying is that King Jesus will accomplish 
all of the good that he has promised. And that that means that all of the work that he's set out for us to do. So David, right, we're like in, in the shoes of David, even though we're not kings. We have work that we've been given to do, we've been called to do, and it's only by King Jesus finishing and accomplishing his work that we have hope for our work to last, for our work to bear eternal fruit. If David had looked forward 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, what happens to the kingdom that he built up? The kingdom that was established through his hard, hard work, it's gone. The people are in exile. The the people are worshiping an idol and not the true God. You, You look forward like that, and it's easy to be hopeless, right? What's going to happen in the future for us? Well, we don't know, but we can look forward and we can guess that things will go bad. We can look forward and we can guess that there will be persecution. We we can look forward and we can guess that there's going to be... uh, that there's going to be children that turn away from the faith. We can look forward and, and we, can, we can assume that our life is going to be a lot like the lives of other people, that in the end, there's going to be suffering and death. This is what happens, right? This isn't, this isn't un, an unusual thing. Every man dies, And so is that proof that God's promises are incomplete? Is that proof that God's promises won't be fulfilled? Is it proof that there's no point, that there's really no hope? No. David knows that God in heaven has a king on the throne. Jesus Christ. Begotten of the Father. Over all the nations. Over all the kings. All the kingdoms. With a perfectly established future. A perfectly established kingdom. Filled with his people. Saved from their sins, saved from those who are persecuting them, saved from the sorrows and pressures and pains of this life, and where their enemies and all of the lies that have been told by the world have been obliterated by his rod of iron. He has been given his inheritance. And so as we come up towards Christmas, we think of the coming of Jesus Christ, and you think how many years after David that was, right? How many years after the kings of Israel, these first kings, where you have the king of God established on Mount Zion in the local political worldly sense, right? And then when the kingdom finally comes. How many years have gone by? And yet, David's work is still bearing fruit, isn't it? Not just when Jesus is born, who is the son of David, the seed of Jesse, right? But even today, where we read his psalms, and we we benefit from the work that he went through. We benefit from his suffering. We benefit from his struggles. We benefit from his faith, from his teaching. What a beautiful thing. Now, you have children, and what happens? Immediately, you face fears. You face doubts. What's going to happen with them? 
And the answer is that God will establish his kingdom by calling his people. And he has promised to be a God to us and to our children after us. And so that is a joyful, joyful promise. And you say, but what about, is it going to be every last one? What about, is it going to, is there any way that I can guarantee that, that this happens the way I want it to happen? The only way to establish your will is to throw off God's fetters. That's not what we want. The only other choice is to make your will conform to his for the future. And now I want you to think about David as he is exiled from his own kingdom by his own son. And the pain of going through that. And you think about the suffering that that causes him, his family, his children, the whole kingdom suffers during that time, right? It's painful. It's miserable. And David responds by faith. He says, God's will is being done. Let the guy alone who's throwing rocks and dirt at me. God's will is being done. And so he trusts God and he, and he subordinates his will to the will of his heavenly Father. That's such an important thing for us to do. Such an important thing for us to see. Now, how exactly do the nations rage against God today? I've said that it's them wanting to do away with the commands of God, right? You think about what the the vain thing is. As many, many people establish themselves firm in their hatred of God, their enmity to him and to his law. Think about our own nation. Think about how our nation has raged against God and against his law. The the pinnacle of a nation raging against God is when a nation passes a law that is in opposition to God's law. You understand? When you, when you get all the way up to the point where you're, where you're passing a law that says God's law is bad and this is actually what's good, right? That's the, that's the, the height of raging against him. We often think of raging being like something that a mob does. A crowd can, can get riled up and can rage and can sin and can hate the, the barriers that they're contained within and attack the police and so forth. That's raging, yes. But that's, that's nothing compared to the scheming and the planning and the raging that, that gets done when we get all the way up to making laws against what God has said, Right? So how has our nation done that? Well, many years ago, we did it uh, with abortion, where we said that it was good, a right. Not just a, a good thing, but a, a necessary right that the government had to protect. That's raging raging crazily against God. And what a vain, vain thing to devise. How does that establish a nation? (laughs) It destroys a nation. And this is the, the, uh, the irony all the time with sin. When we commit sin, it's 
always irrational, right? It never makes any sense for you to sin. It always makes sense for you to obey God. If you're thinking about the outcome, right? Sinning always brings misery and death. And the little veneer of pleasure that sin often brings, it shouldn't, it shouldn't confuse us. We ought to recognize how irrational sin is. So, so what is irrational about a nation establishing abortion as a right? Well, it destroys the future of the nation, right? It establishes among the people the fact, or as a fact, that there is no necessity of us protecting the innocent, the weak, and the helpless. And so when we establish as a nation violence against God and against the weak and the helpless and the innocent, we should never be surprised when the people of the nation are given over to that violence and wickedness in many, many other ways. Bloodshed leads to bloodshed. Another example closer to home is Cincinnati's ordinance that was passed a few years ago that said that it's against the law to try to help somebody turn away from sexual sin. What a vain thing. As though God's, as, as though the gospel of Jesus Christ can be bound. You can be bound, I can be bound, but the gospel of Christ is not bound. It has the power to break the shackles of sin. And then it binds us with the law of God. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so what are these things, these sorts of laws? I mean, we could, we could spend hours talking about our nation. We could look at other nations. We could look just, we could, we could only focus on Milford, and we could look at how the peoples devise a vain thing. But in the end, when it says that he has established his king on holy Zion, what it's saying, what God is promising is, that his kingdom will come. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. God laughs. He laughs it to scorn. He mocks at the idea that, that we would be able to establish ourselves by our own strength. Think about Egypt, the might and power of Egypt, the king of Egypt. And what did the plagues do? They just made a mockery of the laws, the the gods of the Egyptians. Right? They made a mockery of it. And so the whole world saw The whole world knew that God was in control. He judges the idolatry of our nation. And one of the ways that he says that he judges idolatry is by giving people over to homosexual sin. And then what do we do as a nation? We say it's good. Uh, we, we wanted that. 
That's what we were trying to go for. And God laughs. God laughs at that. He mocks it and he says, the rod of iron will crush this that my son wields. He shows us how our idolatry leads to bloodthirstiness and then we say it's good. What will we have left as a nation? What inheritance will we receive and what inheritance will we pass down as a nation? But God's people will have an inheritance. Children are a gift from the Lord. An inheritance. Some of you guys probably know Brian Regan, the comedian. He's got a sketch where he's talking about being a kid in a big family. And how he was younger than other people. And so he got to where he would call things. And he would call the things that he knew he was going to get. Like, you know, I call that chair when you, you run in for a chair. I call that chair. That chair is mine. But he, he would call back seat in the middle with my feet on the hump, the place where nobody wants to sit. That's what he would, that's what he would call, right? Because he knew that's what he was going to get. And so we pretend like we're getting what we want when we're getting what we don't want, right? Everyone wants to sit in the front seat where they have control over the air conditioning and the stereo and can lean back and crush their brother's legs and whatever else it is that you can do when you're in the front seat. We all want something. We've got this idea of what we want. And then we recognize that actually we're not in control of what we get, right? How much are you in control of what you get in this life? God gives it to you. If he's he's given you good things, praise him for it. And if he's given you difficult things, then don't say, well, that's what I wanted anyway. Don't get an attitude with God. When, When our nation gets an attitude with God, when he gives us judgment, he gives us bad things, and we we go, well, that's what we are trying to do. That's what we wanted. He says, all right, I will give you what you wanted. I'll give you what you wanted, and we won't like it. You will drink the whole cup down, the cup of his wrath. But his people that he's given blessings to, we have no fear from the rod of iron. We will not be crushed. What do kings do? They protect their people. If you are in his kingdom, you are under his blessing. You are under his protection. And so the psalmist says, To the kings, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Do you want your nation being blessed or do you want it being crushed? Take warning, O judges of the earth. And what? Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. Now, what is homage? Kids, you know? I got one answer. It was this. One. Anybody, kids, know what homage is? It's a hard word, huh? That's not, that's not it. Just so you know, that wasn't the right answer. Homage is when you bow down. We don't really bow down to anybody today like, the, like they used to with kings, right? 
But I'll tell you a quick story. When my uh, grandfather was in Ethiopia, there was still a king in Ethiopia. And one of the things that you had to do when you went to see the king was that you walked in bowing to the king. And when you walked out, you didn't turn your back on the king and walk away from him. You backed out of the room, bowing to the king as you backed out of the room. It's, It's honoring. It's doing homage. Okay? My grandfather backed into a couch and fell down when he was on his way out. And the request that he was putting in was rejected by the king. Emperor Haile Selassie said, no, we will not allow Bibles to be translated into other languages besides Amharic in, the, in Ethiopia. Because he was trying to establish a national language so they could keep their national identity as one country. <clears throat> so, homage. Back to, this, back to the main point. The rulers, the kings of the earth, the judges are all to do homage to the sun. So who normally does homage? All the, all the riffraff, the normal people like you and me. We do that. We give homage to the rulers, the leaders, the kings, the judges. If you go into a courtroom today, even though there's no kings anywhere around, you're still required to speak a certain way. Even when you're way out in the middle of nowhere, Hicksville in the country where I went uh, to pay a traffic ticket. And nobody's dressed nicely, and half the people are missing their teeth, and, it's, and, and everybody that's there is in real serious trouble, not just traffic tickets. It's just that I was too slow with the mail. So I had to go in person. And you get there, and everybody knows who the judge is. And their behavior towards one another and to the clerk and to the lady at the window, it's all different when they stand up in front of the judge. It's yes, sir, and no, sir. And who's to do homage to the son? The kings and the judges, the people that normally have everybody else bowing to them. Here we have the psalmist saying, you bow down to God the Son, King Jesus. Why? Because his rage may soon be kindled. Before it's too late, live in service to him and to his laws instead of trying to continue throwing them off. Stop pretending like when you get his judgment that that's exactly what you were going for, that you like it. And God's people the temptations that we face are just like the temptations that David faced. He was God's anointed. He was. Yeah, we we face the temptation of wanting to throw off the the bonds that are on us. But I think mostly what we face is the temptation to disbelieve, to doubt that God's will is going to be done. That it is good. We doubt what the, what the outcome is going to be for us and that we can really handle it. That we can actually wait to receive his blessing. But if we do, if we take refuge in him, then we will be blessed. He is establishing his kingdom. 
and blessed are all who take refuge in him. His kingdom is going forth. It's going forth in power. He has a sword and a rod. There is no doubt about whether he has the power to accomplish his will. We've seen it throughout all history that he has that power. We've seen it throughout all history that he establishes his people firm in his favor. And so how does the kingdom go forth today? The kingdom goes forth by the preaching of God's word. The message that we've been given is one of joy and fear. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. And if we receive it, then his kingdom will be established in us and through us. Christ's church is his kingdom, his bride. What a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to have that blessing for ourselves. To be able to be a part of his church is to be able to be a part of his kingdom. Do you love his church? Do you desire to see it grow and bear fruit? This psalm is all about that. Yeah, it's all about the enemies. A lot of it is about the enemies that are opposing the kingdom. But you get to the end and you realize we've got nothing to fear from the enemies. The most they can do is take your life. The most they can do is bind you up. But our goal is is God's kingdom going forth with power. And the gospel cannot be bound. Even when Paul was in prison, what did he say? He preached. He preached to the guards. He preached to those who came and visited him. He never stopped proclaiming the good news. That's, what we've, that's the work we've been given to do. Don't be afraid. Or only fear him. Rejoice with trembling as you give your homage to him. Let's pray.